0: If you have your uh, bulletins, you might pull them out. I want to highlight a couple things on here. Uh, the bulletin has lots of lots of good information in it, but there's some I want to point out. One is on the very back the bulletin board. You have uh, information about Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. If you have uh, are struggling with finances, maybe your debt's too high, uh, too much credit card, whatever. You're not quite sure what to do about it, or you've never really had much training in how to manage your finances, um, I would really encourage you to check this out. I've often said that if I could do uh, one thing over, or information I wish I had at the beginning of my adult journey would be to better information on finances, what to do with it. Uh, Frank Butler, one of our elders, retired CFO, is leading it, knows his stuff. He'll be out afterwards right around over there by the Welcome Center. You can ask him questions. Down at the bottom, the uh, Christian education classes, Bill Spear, is going on right now. So I want to let you know because most of you don't know he teaches a Sunday school class. So if you want to go to that, just get up and leave. That's okay. And uh, he's, you know, when when you hear me preach, a lot of times I bring in cultural background information information to help you understand the passage where did that come from often it comes from archaeology uh, we have we have scholars all around the world doing archaeology and a bunch of other technical terms that that figure out how life happened in the first century so that biblical scholars and preachers and pastors can help it come alive for you so he's talking about archaeology and what do we learn from it how does it bring life to our understanding of scriptures uh, I'm teaching a class on Finding Christ, Survey the New Testament on Wednesday nights, and we actually are putting the books of the New Testament in the order as best we can tell that they were written. So um, we're starting with, not with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're written much later. So the first authors wrote without having the Gospels. Wow. figure that one out. How'd they do that? Lisa Best is teaching one as well. Um, we have two small groups starting up, the Tim and Linda Sealing, I think the are starting tonight. Nancy and I are starting uh, both of these for the fall. Our group is starting tomorrow night. So if you have an interest, send me an email or either of us, any of us, and uh, let us know. And we'll talk about it. Okay. Some of you may know John and Lauren Fisher. They've been coming to our church um, probably not quite a year. They are retiring up here, building a house. Uh, supposed to be done in December, and they're going to be retiring this year and coming up to live in the county. And... Um, they went to a megachurch for many years in Denver, and they decided to look for a smaller church and found us and have been coming. And uh, they drive up. He, John drives up for an hour, and uh, they drive up together for Sunday. When I was in um, Mozambique three weeks ago, she sent me an email that said, please pray for John. Uh, he has pneumonia, so the doctor wants to send him to the hospital. Sent me a quick email. I think it made it out to the prayer chain, so some of you may have actually seen that without even knowing who they were. Well, it wasn't pneumonia; it was stage four lung cancer, <clears throat> and uh, he's a very, very sick man. I was there last uh, week when the uh, doctors told him he had about two weeks to live. That fast, a month ago, he and I were shaking hands in an our hour and talking, and uh, and now he's already um, under enough pain meds that uh, he wouldn't know who most of you are. So. Uh, this is a rough ride. This is a really rough ride. Talk about testing your faith and having your faith stretched. We, um, um, they're trying to figure out life. I don't know what it would mean to, to be told, I have two weeks left to live. They uh, tried chemo, didn't even phase the cancer. So the oncologist said, nope, you're done. Go home. So he's home on hospice. Hospice will keep you medicated so you don't hurt. And I talked to Lauren this morning and asked for permission to share all this with you because I want to pray for them in just a moment. This is, uh, I asked John, when the oncologist and the internal medicine doctor gave them the, the news and then left, uh, his siblings were there, one of his adult children, she Lauren was there. and You can imagine the quiet and the shock, uh, a little bit what you're experiencing, although it's not your life, it's theirs. And so I thought, well, here's my, Here's my cue to jump in. Uh, most of you know I'm not afraid of messy situations. So I just said, John, I would like to talk to you about faith and spirituality. And he said, uh, I would too. Thanks for coming down. I said, you bet. Uh, I said, would you like to have the conversation privately would you like to have it with a family? And he said, well, if the family's okay. I'd like to have it with the family. So we went around and asked, and everybody was okay with it. And I just said, John, you and I have had coffee several times. Um, in fact, they're filling out their applications to become members. Uh, but he won't be able to join us. He won't be back up in the county. He won't make it back up here. And uh, I said, I know I know your faith to be real and genuine. Um, but you tell me. You're the one that was just told that your life is you're almost done. Is your faith real? And he just had tears, and he said, yes, it's, it's real. It's genuine. It's very real. So we went around and processed as a family just the different emotions and feelings and um, <clears throat> kind of shifts in priority. This is a priority-shifting event. I asked him, has your faith ever been tested this much? He said, oh, no. This is the definitely the the ultimate test. And um, I'm okay. I have no unfinished business. I'm ready to meet the Lord. I just don't want to. And um, so when we were done, I After about an hour of talking, I said to Lauren, I said, Lauren, can I steal you away for a little while? She said, sure. And I said to John, I'm taking your wife. I'm sure you know she needs it. I'm just going to go out and love on her. And he goes, thank you. So we went out and found a quiet alcove and just let her sob and just held her and hug, cry, hug, cry, hug, cry, and talk through things. And she said, "Um, do you really think I'm going to be okay? Is that a good question? That's a great question. And I said, absolutely, you're going to be okay. Several of you have lost spouses, as have I. said, so we've been through it. It will hurt worse than you have ever hurt. But yes, you're going to be okay. Well, what about our dreams? We're building a house and all that. And I said, well, if the Lord decides to take John, I said, you're faced with two realities. We don't know which one God's going to choose. One is he's going to heal him permanently by taking him home, and the other one is going to heal him temporarily by leaving him here. So those are both realities, and one is not has no more probability than the other one. We just don't know which one the Lord is going to choose. If the Lord chooses to take John home early, what you will find, like many before you, you will find newfound strengths, and you'll find that perhaps the uh, dreams that you guys had are even more important to you, or you may find other dreams that you didn't realize were out there. But you will be okay. You will be okay. What is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? That's the series we're starting today. What is it? Another way to ask the question is if the Lord returned today, what would you be embarrassed about? They're usually one and the same. What would you be embarrassed about? What is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? I'm going to share a story. I thought about actually taking you through the exercise, but it wouldn't be the nicest thing in the world, so I'm going to tell you about it. My very first day in seminary, my very first class, my very first opening words as a young seminary student that wants to move into full-time ministry and to get equipped. You expect the professor to walk up, Hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Pull out the syllabus, and uh, here's what you have to do. But that's not what happened. I had the privilege of studying under Dr. Howard Hendricks. Some of you know that name. Uh, very, very good man who's now with the Lord. He walked in, set his books down, and he just went like this. I suspect he was praying. I never asked him. And uh, the bell rang. He looks up, and he says, Are you godly? It's the very first words I heard in my class at seminary. I'll never forget it. I forgot a lot of things from seminary, but I won't forget that. Are you godly? And you kind of hear, uh, there's 200 students. None of us are about to stand up. We're all brand new. We're not about to raise our hand. We're not about to even, you know, stay below the radar. That's the goal, right? So he said, no, I want to know. If you're godly, stand up. That's what I thought about having you do it, and I changed my mind. <laughs> if you're godly, stand up. I want to see. Come on, stand up. Who's godly? So two people stood up. It wasn't me. <laughs> and he said, thank you, thank you. And he said, so, the question is, has God given you everything you need to be godly? And you kind of hear a low rumble through the auditorium. He says, no, I want to know. Has he or not? Yes or no? So you hear this resounding yes. And he said, "Uh, so what's wrong with you? Is that a good question? What a way to start seminary. What's wrong with you? What is keeping you from being godly? What is it? He went on, as students, said, um, Let me tell you what we're going to do in seminary. We're going to teach you how to study the Bible. We are not going to teach you how to be pastors. If you think for one second you're going to leave here as a 30-year-old and tell an 80-year-old how to bury his wife, you're going to learn something real fast. Whether you become a pastor, a good counselor, a Christian leader, whether you do that is between you and God. That's not our decision. Our decision is to give you skills. We'll teach you how to study the Bible. What you do with it is up to you. If I had my way, none of you would be here unless you'd been in pastoral ministry for at least 10 years. But the seminary is out to make a buck, and I'm not on the board. That's what he told us. We'll never forget it. What is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? What is it? What's in the way? We're going to look in James. This is not a study of James. We're going to look specifically at four characters that James uses to illustrate his point. Two of them we expect, and two of them are surprises. He uses Abraham. That's not a surprise. Abraham is held up in many places as a man of faith. Um, but the way he uses Abraham is unique. And he uses Elijah, another man of faith, a prophet. And those aren't surprises. But what are surprises is that he uses Rahab, a prostitute, to show what it means to be wholly committed to God. It's stunning. Who would have ever thought you'd use a prostitute to answer that question? But he did. And he uses Job. Who at the end of his life is shaking his fist at God. He is. What is Job's, what is God's words to Job? You know, he said, uh Job's last words were, Where is he? If he would pay attention to me, he would listen to me, I would state my case, and he would repent. Wow. All of a sudden there's a whirlwind, and God says, I love the older translation. Okay, you wanted an audience? You got it. Gird up your loins like a man. (laughs) Love that old language. I will test you, and you will answer me. So the end of Job's year of punishment and suffering and pain, he's shaking his fist at God, and James uses him as an example. James is one of the, perhaps the oldest book I personally believe it's either number one or two in the canon, in, the, in the, the New Testament era. And so this represents one of the earliest Christian statements about how we live our life. It doesn't start with doctrine. Let's talk about the Trinity or God or any Holy none of that. That all comes later with Paul. But James starts with the very first thing. How do we live our lives? What does this look like? Now, you have to remember, this is a very confusing time in the church. This is not an easy time. They're trying to make sense of Jesus and his words and his actions because he, he acted and said things so differently than what they expected. The way they interpreted the Old Testament, Jesus didn't comply. He, talks, he starts claiming the titles that only God can have. He starts claiming the prerogatives that only God can do, like, I, I forgive you. He's not allowed to do that. Only God can forgive sin. He starts acting in a way that he's claiming to be God. And there's Christians are all scratching their head, looking back and saying, who is this guy? And then he starts talking about the Holy Spirit as if he's got his own unique personality. What? Where did that come from? So this is a very confusing time in the church. This is written about 15 years after Jesus is gone. So there's during this intervening 15 years, there's lots of oral discussion going on among the Christians trying to make sense of all of this. So James decides to write probably 48 or 49 A.D., just before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And so he writes, and what he starts with is just stunning. It's astounding to us what he says. And we're going to look at James 1, and then over the next four weeks, look at these four characters from the Old Testament and see what they give us in the way of insight into how to live our lives. So where do we start? Now, remember, you are perhaps reading the very first thing written in the Christian church. Okay? James 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. You realize how counter that is to Jewish belief? If God is on our side, we won't encounter trials. He'll take care of us. He'll bless us. He'll promise to watch out for us. He'll take care of our crops, our animals. The opening statement is earth-shattering. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. Consider it pure joy, John and Lauren, when you find out that you have two weeks left to live, John. Wow. What a starting place. If you were to sit down and write the New Testament, would you have started here? I wouldn't have. And yet that's where he started. They're trying to make sense of it. You see, the Old Testament, the reason why they're scratching their heads is because they all knew the Old Testament. And what Jesus did didn't make sense in light of what they had thought, the way they had interpreted the Old Testament. So they had to begin to rethink what they, uh, how they understood the Old Testament. So once they began to rethink the Old Testament, they interpreted the Old Testament in light of Christ and what he had done and said and taught. The New Testament represents there the result of those discussions led by the Holy Spirit. So the New Testament is a Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament interpreted, in, interpreted through the lens of the, the life and teachings of Jesus. That's what it is. So what did he learn from the life of Christ? Consider it pure joy when you go through trials. That's what he learned. And he starts to introduce these key words. Consider pure joy when you face trials of any kind. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith, there it is, your faith has to be tested. If it's not tested, you'll never know if it's genuine. And you know what John found out? His is genuine. You know what I found out when my wife died? Mine was genuine. Many of you have been through this. There's no way your faith will ever grow or it'll ever be confirmed to you that it's real until you undergo some trial. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So what have I told Lauren? Hang in there. You're not alone. Hang in, I called her this morning just to spend time with her on the phone. By the way, if you're in a situation where you're really hurting terribly for some reason, call us. Okay, call us. Our pastors and elders will come running. We don't want you to do it alone. I don't want her to go through it alone. So I was down last week. Mark was down last week. I called her this morning. We'll probably both be back down this week just to be with them. Produces perseverance. Hang in there. And then he says, let perseverance finish its work. So you are in the middle of a project. Your life is a project to build your faith, to conform you to the image of Christ, to transform you into something better. You're becoming a better human. And the testing of your faith is one of the key ways that God does that work. Let it happen. Let it happen. So that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. There it is. That's the end product. Mature, complete, lacking in nothing. So that when you step into eternity, you enjoy it. If any of you lacks wisdom, he goes on to talk about wisdom. This is designed to get your attention. These are the opening words of the Christian canon. Wow. Wow. Would you have started there? It's easy to talk about doctrine. Sometimes that's much easier. After this opening verse, he goes on to verse 22 and lays out kind of the theme for what he really wants to talk about. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror. After looking at themselves, they go away and immediately forget what they look like. Do what it says. He's going to go on to argue faith without works is dead. It's useless faith. It's worthless faith. faith It has no redeeming value. It's not faith. See, the faith in Scripture always, always includes the element of living it out. Only in modern times have we turned faith into a cognitive belief, a mental ascent. That they would have never conceived of that in the first century world. If you believe it to be true, your life will change. When I lead people to the Lord, I, uh, just inside I, I feel joy, but I kind of have a smile. And I say, if they really turn to the Lord, I will see it. They can't help but change because you now you have a conscience, a Holy Spirit. You've been regenerated. You have all that. You will change. What is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? These are the opening words of our Christian Bible, the New Testament. Making sense of the Old Testament. What is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? In verses 26 and 27, we see kind of a summary. Those who consider themselves, listen to these words carefully because it may apply to you. Those who consider themselves religious, I suspect all of you do at some level. And yet, do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. These are hard words. This is in-your-face theology. This is confrontational. How many of you consider yourself religious? How many of you keep a tight rein on your tongue? That's just one example. He's going to give many more before the book's over. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, or you could say this, and yet do not live out their faith, their religion is worthless, has no value. Zero. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He introduces two basic kinds of works which are fleshed out in the rest of the book. One, works of love and compassion for the needy. In their world, those are the widows and the orphans. In our world, we can add many to it. Those are the works that God counts as precious. The second one is keeping ourselves from being polluted or pursuing the world. However, he begins with a strong exhortation. Do you consider yourself religious? If so, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Live it out. Do what the Bible says. If the Bible says do everything without grumbling and complaining, folks, do everything without grumbling and complaining. It's your choice. Stop it. Are you the type of person that has trouble controlling the tongue? Do you talk badly about people when they're not around? I talk badly about them to their face, that way I don't have to worry. (laughs) Do you gossip? Do you complain? Do you grumble? Or do you have the right theology? Do you really believe that everything God does is good? As Paul says, when he gives a litany, of long list of all he had been through, these things are minor compared to the eternal weight of glory. How genuine is your religion? How genuine is your faith? He sets up a distinction between the world and the values of God. He uses the word world five times, every time it's in reference to an entire cultural system of values. This value system in the Bible is always opposed to God. I describe it this way. Culture is always going to take you off the cliff, always. I don't know of any example where culture has not done that. But when God speaks into culture, he reverses that and pulls us back from that destructive tendency. So many of the values that we enjoy in uh, American culture were derived somewhere along the way from biblical principles. For instance, dignity of the human, sexual morality. Come with me to the countries I go teach you in and you'll see the absolute absence of those values. The things that we take for granted, we shouldn't. Where'd they come from here? Did the world ever come to the conclusion that humans have value? Absolutely not. If you look at any of the religions that predate Christianity, they absolutely have no language in there about that. Hinduism is one of them. Sexual morality, there's no language in there about it. So when I'm in that culture, I have to actually define the concept because they don't even have the words for it. The things that we take for granted have come, someone in the past surfaced some of these values. So you got a choice. What's James arguing? You have a choice. You can choose the values of culture or you can choose the values of God. You can't have both. It's your choice. So what is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? What is it? Every one of you would answer the question probably a little differently. Is it success? Wealth? By the way, when he starts talking about wealth, oh my goodness, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And we haven't even gotten to the hard passage, that's in chapter 5. The most scathing rebuke of the rich is in chapter 5. So what is he saying here? Is the rich evil? Is being rich evil? Well, I call this a great reversal because those that are poor are the ones that are going to be elevated. And those who are wealthy are going to be brought down. Is he talking about that? I'll give you one clue. He calls the uh, poor believers. And he calls the rich the rich. Just a clue. Chapter 5, we'll look at this even more in five weeks. You have to wait till then to figure it out. It talks about wisdom, a lot about wisdom. Wisdom is more than making the right decisions. Wisdom is making the right decisions the way you were created and the way that honored God. It's much bigger than that. It's making the right decisions that help you transform into the image of Christ and help you draw closer to the Lord and live out your faith in ways he expects. He goes on to talk about the true source of temptations, and there he's very careful about saying, be steadfast. Friends of God do not blame God for their trouble. Job did, and God got right in his face. Where is he? If he would only listen to me, I would present my case, and he would repent. And what what did God say at the end of his test? Would you really annul my judgment? He could have said Satan did that, but he didn't. God never shirks from his responsibility, ever. Would you really annul my judgment? This was my decision and mine alone that you go through this. Here what the question is. Do you really believe in the goodness of God? Do you really believe it? Is God good in all that he does? When Judy, my first wife, passed away, I was holding her hands when her heart stopped. My very first thought surprised me was to laugh and say, wow, God just took away the most important person to me and my faith is real. And then I started crying my eyes out. My faith was real. Do you really want your faith to grow? It's costly if you do. For those of you that are struggling, don't give up. Please don't give up. Come talk to us. Let us help you. You don't have to do it alone. That's what the community of faith is all about. Don't keep it to yourself. The more private you keep it, the harder the road is. That's the way it works. Come talk to us. For those of you who are not living out your faith, what is, gonna, what is it going to take to change that? tell me. What's it going to take to change it? I can't change it for you. I only have my own life to live. What's it going to take? If you can figure out what is keeping you from being wholly devoted to God, then you can start answering the question. As a very young, newly married person, um, my wife did not have insurance. She was uninsurable at that time. And so I took a job making a Really good money for me back then, and uh, it didn't take me long to realize that I was beginning to lose the zeal and the excitement I'd met as a first met as a believer. so I resigned my job to get back to where I was not encouraging you to do that that's just my own journey. That's how I did it to get back to that first love what's, what's in the what's the obstacle that's in your way? What is it? Look in the mirror, mirror and be honest with yourself about it. What is it? And deal with it. God is faithful. You will ultimately be blessed. I love the songs that we sang today. Most of those songs are an expression of someone in tribulation, someone in trial. You, you're, you recognize some of the spirituals. Cold iron shackles around my leg will be released That's by a slave. It's going to be released, and I'll be free. Some are written by people who have lost spouses. Yeah, we are supposed to enjoy life today, but true hope comes by being faithful. How real is your faith? Father, thank you. Thank you for the very first words after Christ died that you decide to write down for us or words about living out our faith in very real and genuine ways. I could see where James would get that by looking at the life of Christ and the way he sacrificed so much for us. He could have stayed and enjoyed the joy of heaven, Hebrews tells us, but instead he took up the shame that came with the cross for our benefit. Help us, Lord, each of us in our own ways and us as a faith community to be wholly committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.